Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Sheng Wo's Treasure by Melissa Weedart Phillips 1727 Accounts written by Captain Valentina of the Vampiro del Mare. Today we captured a British sailing ship. There were enough provisions on board to last us, with only a few things missing, but there was little medicine to be had. The ship, it seemed, was bound for England, its cargo fabrics from India. I and some of the rest of the crew shall have new dresses made, for when we go ashore to help blend in. But since we are still in need of a few supplies, we have taken Vampiro del Mare close to the shore and hidden her from sight of the town around a headland. I shall be going ashore in some of my finery with what little coin there was to be taken to purchase supplies. The ship's cook Delphine is to accompany me while I leave the ship in the capable hands of first mate Yang Bao. Valentina closed the large logbook with a thud. She then stood and moved to stare out of the cabin window at the darkening sky outside. She had felt it best that they slip into the town under cover of darkness, as there seemed to be an increasing number of naval ships about these days, and she hoped they would encounter fewer of the crew on land. She placed a red jewelled necklace at her throat, the gems glittering against her olive skin in the candlelight. She picked up a large shawl and draped it over her dress, so that it obscured the brace of pistols at her waist. She would have preferred to take her cutlass too, but settled on a dagger hidden in her skirts. For the same reason, she would also be leaving her feathered captain's hat behind. This was not a particularly friendly port to ladies and gentlemen of fortune, and the responsibility of her crew's safety weighed heavily on her mind these days. It felt as if the world was getting smaller, and there were fewer and fewer places you could hide. She felt soon they needed to find a place to settle down where they could be safe, but she did not know where that might be. She sighed and left her cabin, going on deck with the rest of the crew. She made her way over to the side of the ship, where young Bao stood holding a lantern high, his black hair tied back in a pigtail under the red bandana he always wore. Look after the ship, young Bao, she said. He nodded, his expression serious knowing she meant business when she used his full name. Usually she only called him Yang, something none of the rest of the crew dared. Well, except for maybe Delphine, Valentina mused, as she began to descend the rope ladder to the little jolly boat below, where the French woman waited, trying to keep it steady. When Valentina was settled, Delphine began to row, taking them away from the looming side of the ship and towards the bright lights and sound of the town in the distance. The sound of laughter and shouts rang across the water, the flickering torches reflecting in the murky depths around the wooden jetty as they reached it. Valentina stood for a moment, surveying the town. 
seeing the shadowy forms of people moving between the wooden buildings, while Delphine made the jolly boat fast. I think it would be best if we separated, Valentina said, glancing across towards the large English ships they had passed, anchored out in the deeper waters. We need to be quick. Delphine nodded, taking the proffered coins so she could purchase the last couple of missing supplies for the crew. The two of them hurried towards the buildings, peeling off in different directions, as Valentina was going to try and find some medical supplies. Although no one was injured at the moment, she did not like how little they had left. Valentina walked with confidence and assurity between the buildings, ignoring anyone who called out to her, knowing this demeanour would make her safer. Yet she was still ready to dive into the shadows at sight of any naval crew. This island, she knew, had been a stronghold and safe haven for pirates for many years, but now the enemy's ships drew close, and her need to go unnoticed was of the utmost importance. She found there were still plenty of traders who were willing to strike a deal in the back of a dark inn in exchange for coin. Soon she had all she needed and turned back towards the docks, now laden with a heavy sack. She hoped Delphine would be waiting for her and they could return to the ship and leave the dangers of this island soon. She hadn't gone far when she heard the sounds of breaking glass and shouts behind her. She turned and saw a figure lying on the ground outside of a tavern she had just passed, remnants of the shattered window glinting all around him in the torchlight. She quickened her pace, not wanting to be caught up in a fight, but she had not taken very many steps when she heard the sound of running feet behind her, followed by more shouts in the distance. She half-turned, just in time to collide with a running figure. Her sack of supplies thudded to the ground as she steadied herself, the man who had knocked into her, reaching to grab at her arm to steady himself as he also tried not to fall. "'Watch where you're going,' she snapped, wrenching her arm from his grip. The man looked up at her, his face revealed from under the shadow of his tricorn. Valentina blinked in surprise. Under the layers of dirt and blood from several cuts, she saw the soft features and bright pleading blue eyes of a young woman. The woman glanced back down the street, where following her gaze Valentina saw four men running towards them from the remnants of the inn. The woman began to move again, stumbling against the wall for a moment. Clearly she'd sustained an injury from crashing through the window. Valentina made a split-second decision and reached for one of her flintlock pistols. She drew it quickly, there was a bright flash as the powder ignited, and a deafening crack as a shot flew in the direction of the pursuers. She did not pause to see who it had hit. Instead, she reached for the sack, hurrying after the injured woman. This way, Valentina said, reaching out a hand to halt the woman. We need to lose them. The woman paused for only a moment, then nodded and followed Valentina down a side alley. They had not moved quickly enough, though, and she soon heard the sound of the people behind them. Here! She tossed the sack at the woman, turning and drawing her other pistol. It fired, the flash of gunpowder leaving a searing pain on the back of her hand, but she was already reaching for her cutlass instinctively, before cursing inwardly as she remembered it was not there. She reached instead into the folds of her skirt for the concealed dagger. She saw one of the two men moving towards the other woman. The remaining man was fumbling with his own pistol. Although his hands seemed unsteady, she presumed from drink, he was bringing the barrel up to point at her. 
She lunged forwards, putting the full force of her strength behind the dagger as it plunged into his side, causing the bullet to go wide, smashing into the wall next to her. She grabbed his gun as he stumbled and spun to see the remaining man fall to the ground, the mysterious woman standing over him with the heavy sack. Valentina leapt towards the woman, grabbing her hand and pulling her along the alley, quickly turning off down another passageway than another. She took the sack back, noticing the other woman was limping, feeling relief at knowing they were not far from the boat. As the jetty came into sight, she saw Delphine look up in surprise, then move quickly to untie the rope, leaping into the boat and readying it for their departure. Valentina climbed into the jolly boat, then helped the woman in after her, steadying her. They had gone a little way when two figures appeared on the shore, their voices carrying to the trio across the water. "'We'd better hurry,' Valentina said, frowning. Delphine just nodded, and continued to pull hard on the oars. She then turned her attention to the woman, who had taken off her hat, red hair now flowing around her pale face. "'My name is Valentina. Who are you?' "'Alice,' the woman replied. Her accent sounded English. "'So, Alice, what did they want with you?' Alice paused, looking uncertain, reaching up to her face, inadvertently smearing some of the blood. "'If you want to come aboard my ship, then I need to know who you are. Or, if you prefer, we can drop you off here, and you can swim back to shore.' I was posing as a man in their crew, Alice said, her tone annoyed. A few of them became drunk and there was a fight. One of them bumped into me and realised I was a woman. Where do you come from? England. Do you have any problems with gentlemen of fortune? No, Alice said, her tone uncertain, making it sound more like a question. Good, Valentina said. Then welcome to the Vampiro del Mare. She gestured towards the looming shape above them, and Alice turned to stare up at it. She climbed up the ladder after Alice, glancing up in concern in case the woman fell with her injured leg. Some of the crew were already lowering a rope to bring up the supplies. When she reached the deck, the others just staring at Alice in open curiosity, including a small boy half hidden behind his mother's skirts. "'Wait in my cabin,' she said, gesturing." Alice moved as quickly as she could, seeming relieved at the thought of being away from all the watching eyes. Yang, Valentina said, tell them to ready the ship to sail the moment the supplies are on board. Full sail, we are being followed. Then join me in the cabin. He nodded, quickly turning to do as she had instructed. As she neared the cabin, she became aware of pain in her upper arm. She glanced at it and saw a few splinters of wood embedded in it. It must have been from when the bullet hit the wall next to her, and only now, as the excitement wore off, did the pain begin to creep in, bringing with it fatigue. But she straightened her shoulders and stood tall as she entered the cabin, closing the door behind her. Alice turned to her quickly, eyes wide and wary. "'Come here,' Valentina said, reaching for a cloth, 
and dipping it into a water jug. She lifted it and carefully began to dab at the cuts on Alice's face, removing first the blood and then the grime. Alice's breath was soft and warm on her cheek. Her bright eyes kept darting sideways to stare at Valentina as she worked. Sit down, she said, nodding towards the bed. Alice did so, and Valentina moved to carefully roll up Alice's trouser to reveal a cut on her lower leg, which she began to clean, being as gentle as possible, as Alice drew in a sharp breath above her. There was a knock on the door, and Yang Bao entered, bringing with him some bandages and alcohol for cleaning the wounds. After he had helped remove the splinters from her shoulder, and all their wounds were tended to, the two of them sat in chairs, leaving Alice with her leg resting on the bed. "'We need to do something,' Valentina said to Yang Bao. "'They are just going to keep chasing us. There is so little space left in this world for us.' We need to do something big, something that will make us safe. Yang Bao nodded, looking thoughtful. There is always Sheng Wo's treasure, he said. But does it even exist, she asked him. I believe it does, he said, tone serious, his dark eyes wide. All right then, she said, we shall go east. What is Sheng Wo's treasure? Alice asked from the bed making them both glance over in surprise. Sheng Huo, Yang Bao began, was a demigod who loved his people very much. He often walked among them and listened to the stories of their lives, fascinated by them. But one day the people became sad, for a great famine swept the land. Sheng Huo cared for them so much that he created a beautiful bowl for them, which would always be filled with food, however much they ate people were very grateful to him and made offerings of flowers, ribbons and carvings. Some years later a plague came to the land and the people suffered. Again Sheng Huo took pity on them and created a glass vial which contained an elixir so powerful that one drop could cure any illness or injury. He grew tired as it took much energy to create these things. But again the people were grateful and gave him flowers and ribbons, but no carvings. Time passed, and a fearsome army began to roam the lands round where the people lived. They grew fearful, knowing that any day their homes would be attacked. Although he was weary, Sheng Wo came to their aid for a third time. He took a long red ribbon from his hair, and shaped it into a figure of eight with no end or beginning. When placed in the centre of the village, the village became invisible to all those outside it, and the terrifying army passed by. Sheng Wo waited patiently for the people to come to him in their thanks, but as many days passed and no one came, he went to the village. The people showed little gratitude for his kindness, and made no offerings. Heartbroken by their thoughtlessness, Sheng Wo took all three objects and left the village forever. He is said to have travelled south until he found a small, uninhabited island where he hid the treasures with a creature to guard them so that only the most worthy would be able to find them one day. That was astonishing, Alice said as Yang Bao finished. Valentina smiled at him, allowing herself a moment to remember the first time she had heard him tell the story. 
before she focused on the present. "'How come you're so far from England?' she asked Alice, "'and on that navy ship?' "'My entire family died,' Alice said, her eyes sad. "'And I would have starved on the street, "'so I took my older brother's clothes "'and disguised myself as a man. "'I took the first ship I could find, leaving Bristol.' "'You are welcome to stay here,' Valentina said, "'feeling sad for the young woman. "'You are pirates?' Alice asked, matter-of-factly. "'Yes, but we are also outcasts with nowhere else to go.' "'Then I should fit right in,' Alice smiled. "'Where did you come from?' "'Napoli,' Valentina said. She paused for a moment, not having thought about her homeland in many years. "'My family was reasonably wealthy, but they married me off to a husband I did not want, and he was not very kind and often neglectful.' One night he was very drunk and went to hit me, but I'd recently met a woman, Serena, and she stepped in, then took me with her. She gave me one of the ships her crew captured, and now here I am. "'You are the captain of this ship?' Alice asked in awe. "'Yes, elected by all the crew. I serve them.' "'And you?' Alice asked, turning to Yang Bao. "'I come from China,' he said. My father was a merchant, looked down on, but he worked hard and came to control a fleet of trading ships. Some of the high-born people where we lived did not appreciate that we had gained status with hard work and money, and not by birth. There was an incident, and I had to flee to live. But I was lucky enough to be found by Valentina, and this is my new family. We shall try and outrun their ship as ours is a lighter and faster vessel, Valentina said, and go in search of the treasure. I shall address the crew. 1727. Accounts written by Captain Valentina of the Vampiro del Mare. With enough supplies on board, we head east. The English ship in pursuit of us can be spied through the telescope on the horizon from time to time. Some of the crew and Alice seem to wonder at my belief in Yang Bao's tale. But I do not find it fantastical, as Serena, who saved me when I lived in Napoli, was not in fact human. She was a vampiro. She was not, as legends would have us believe, bloated and ruby from blood, but rather she was astonishingly beautiful, with fangs that would appear when she fed. With her blessing I named this vessel in her honour, and many ships, when they see us coming, surrender as I have built upon the stories of ships left by her with no one alive and the decks red with blood. Now it seems to people that this craft can move quickly from one place to another, and when we do fight I transform myself into the image of a vampiro. It worries me that the English ship still follows us with such legends. Seventeen twenty seven accounts written by Captain Valentina of the Vampiro del Mare. We have run across the sea for nearly a month now, our pursuer always reappearing when we think we have lost them. Islands are beginning to appear, but I hope we find the right one soon, for I have increasing pain where the splinters were removed from my arm. Alice has taken to her new life well, 
She is part of the crew now as much as any, her injuries fully recovered. Valentina, Yang Bao said as he entered her cabin with a look of concern. How do you feel today? A little feverish, but I think I shall walk the deck later and the salt air will refresh me. I will clean your arm again, he said, sinking down beside her. She winced slightly as the cold cloth touched her skin. She did not watch as Yang Bao cleaned the infection, but stared up at the wooden panelling of the ceiling instead, feeling relieved to know Yang Bao could step up when needed. The ship would be in safe hands if they did not find the treasure in time. Thank you, she said, sitting up when he had finished. How close do they draw to us today? I fear they may catch up with us soon, Yang Bao said, his tone grave. I am sorry to have brought us all here if this ends in nothing. There are islands around us now, but somehow I know none of them are right, although I cannot say how I know this. I understand, she said kindly. There are some forces stronger than us. I shall return to watch, Yang Bao said, rising. Alice asked if she may visit you. Yes, Valentina said, feeling a smile on her face for the first time in days as she watched Yang Bao leave. I hope I'm not intruding, Alice said a moment later when she entered. Not at all, Valentina said, swinging round so she was sitting on the bed. Come and sit next to me. Alice hesitated for a moment. Then she sat quite close, her hand resting inches from Valentina's on the sheet. She saw Alice glance sideways at her through the veil of red hair, then look quickly away again. Her fingers twitched involuntarily, wanting to reach out and take the other woman's hand. "'Are you glad you came with us?' she asked instead. "'Yes.' It came out as an urgent whisper. She tilted her head, her own brown curls swinging forward to hide her face, allowing her to stare sideways through the strands for a moment, trying to uncover Alice's unreadable expression. She leant sideways slightly, smelling the fresh salt air on Alice's dress, her hand starting to inch closer to the other woman's. There was a knock on the door and she pulled back, fighting to contain an inner scream of annoyance. "'Yes,' she called, her voice sounding calm. Delphine opened the door. "'The English ship draws very close to us,' she said. "'Yang asked if you would join us on deck.' "'Of course,' she said, standing up, Alice doing the same. She fastened her weapons belt and swiped up her plumed hat, discreetly wiping away the sweat from her hot brow as she placed the hat on her head. On deck she saw with horror how close the other ship was, almost within cannon range. "'Full sail!' she commanded, pushing away her feelings of illness and focusing on her crew's safety, her family really. "'Watch for hidden reefs or rocks under the water near the islands.' She cast a glance at Alice, then went to join Yang Bao at the prow of the ship, where he stared ahead for any sign of the island they needed. She closed her eyes and willed their safe passage, calling out to Sheng Wo to help them. There! That must be it! She opened her eyes and stared where Yang Bao was pointing. 
A smaller island rose out of the sea ahead of them. Gold sands changed to trees and undergrowth, which in turn ringed a rocky peak. She stared at the top of the craggy hill, unable to believe how much the rock looked like a sleeping beast, as if it had wrapped its long body round itself in coils, head resting on top. She turned and began issuing orders to head for the island and to ready for battle. She went into her cabin, moving to the lantern and scooping up some wax. It was soft enough to mould into the shape of fangs, which she held to her teeth for a moment until they went cold. They would not last long in battle, but they did give her enemy a reason to hesitate, and when the fighting began she would smear some blood on her face. She had found it a tactic which often made her enemy surrender or run in fear. "'We shall drop anchor and take the jolly boats ashore,' she said, re-emerging. "'We're leaving the ship?' Alice asked, appearing at her side. "'Yes,' Valentina answered, knowing she had to stick to her plan." They will want to take us alive and the ship for bounty. It means they will not fire on the ship and we can escape on land to search for the treasure which will protect us. We have a short head start if we leave now. Might it not be wise to take the ship round the far side of the island? Yang Bao said, coming over. Yes, she agreed. Two or three can stay behind and sail her round. The English may follow, but if we set up on the beach and fire at them, they will likely send some people ashore. What about the cannons? he asked. I am willing to bet they want proof of my capture, as there is a high reward for me. They will not risk blowing me to pieces. There were not enough jolly boats to get all the crew who were going ashore in one trip, so Valentina waited, watching the approaching enemy through her telescope, until only she, Alice and Yang Bao remained. As much as it pained her to leave the Vampiro del Mare, she knew it was for the best. The few who were to take the ship to the far side of the island were ready, as she and the other two joined Delphine in a jolly boat she had brought back for them. The boat sat low in the water, and if it was not for the calm sea she was sure they would have taken on water, but they made it to the beach as the Vampiro del Mare moved aside to reveal the English ship and she saw with relief that it too had lowered boats which were following them to the beach. While they waited for the English sailors to reach them, Valentina ordered some of the jolly boats be dragged up the shore and overturned to create some form of cover for them. When the English reached shallow enough waters, they leapt over the sides of their boats and came on foot towards the pirates, who in return fired shots as they were now in range. Valentina had been reluctantly persuaded by Yang Bao to crouch behind the others, as she was still not at full strength, but it did not sit well with her as she was usually leading her crew. She glanced at Alice, who was near her, and saw the other woman looked anxious. "'Stay low and you will be fine,' she told her, "'and have your weapons to hand.' Alice nodded, and Valentina saw her grip the hilt of her cutlass harder. "'We need the treasure,' Yang Bao said, coming to her side. You need to leave us defending the beach and go in search of it. It is my duty to stay with the crew, she said firmly. It is your duty to keep us alive, he said. I will stay with them. Now go before they reach us and more than shots are exchanged. 
She could not bear the thought of leaving the others, but she knew deep down he was right. She turned and dashed away from the beach, leaping into the undergrowth, using her cutlass to cut a pathway through to the hill beyond. It was hard going and hot work, but she persevered, willing herself forward. Eventually the trees began to thin, and she was able to see the lower slopes of the rocky hill. Suddenly there was a loud rustling behind her and the crack of a branch. She spun round, cutlass raised, ready to strike. "'It is me!' Alice cried, holding her hands up. "'What are you doing here?' Valentina asked angrily. "'I could have hurt you!' "'I did not want you to go alone.' "'Come on, then,' she said. "'We have no time to waste.' heading for the stone beast at the top of the hill, hoping fervently that she would find some clue to the treasure there. There were still many trees and trailing vines dotted over the slope, and it was hard progress. She removed the wax teeth as she was not going to be fighting, and it felt far too hot for them. They were just nearing the base of the stone creature when a man emerged from behind one of the trees, pistols in both hands aimed at them. Valentina stopped weighing up her options, knowing she could not reach and fire her own pistols fast enough. "'What are you doing here?' he asked, stepping forward. Valentina stared at him for a moment, calculating. He seemed to be annoyed by her silence and came closer. "'Well?' "'We are looking for a great treasure,' she finally said. "'What treasure? Why should I believe you?' he said although he sounded interested. "'It is beyond your wildest dreams,' Alice spoke up from beside her. "'Gold, jewels, and coins. "'Enough to last anyone a lifetime,' Valentina agreed. "'You would never have to answer to anyone ever again. "'Do you want to help us find it?' "'He seemed uncertain.' But then he had not moved to take them back to the others yet, she thought. Just think what it could mean, she said, lowering her voice so he had to lean in. Not only would you have captured the captain of the dreaded Vampiro del Mare, who is said to be more than human, but also you would have found the lost treasure of Sheng Wo. She let her words hang in the air between them, a conspiratorial smile on her face. All right, then, he said, straightening his shoulders. Help me find it. She glanced across at Alice, who widened her eyes in response. Clearly she had no idea how to actually find the treasure either. Where is it, then? he asked. Do you have a map for it? No, Valentina admitted. We just know it is around here somewhere. Search, then, he commanded them. She moved forwards to run her hands over the rock surface, searching for any sign of a hidden opening, pushing plants aside in case of a concealed cave, glancing up towards the stone creature above them. "'How are we going to get out of this?' Alice whispered beside her. 
I do not know, but keep going. Her thoughts tumbled over each other, trying and trying to come up with a plan. She couldn't bear the thought of something happening to Alice because of her. Her chest hurt and her breath caught. Sheng Wo, she whispered under her breath. Please help us. She let her head fall forwards for a moment, brow resting against the rock. There was a cracking, grinding noise above her, and she quickly looked up. The stone creature was sitting up, unfurling its wings. Its body no longer was grey like the rock, but rather pale blue, shimmering scales. It flapped its wings, sinuous body unravelling, lifting its snout to sniff at the air. Then it tilted its head, dark black eyes staring down at the frozen trio. It lifted off the hilltop, swooping down to land next to them, flattening a small tree with its feet. At the splintering sound of wood, the man came to life again and lifted his pistols, firing them directly at the dragon-like creature. Valentina grabbed Alice and pressed her against the rock, covering her with her own body as the bullets hit the creature's scales and glanced off in every direction. When there was just silence, she looked up and saw the man lying on the ground, the dragon standing above him. She moved away from Alice and took a tentative step towards the creature. She glanced down at the man for a second and saw one of his bullets had ricocheted back and hit him, killing him instantly. Then she looked up into the dark eyes of the beast. Valentina! She heard Alice call in concern behind her. The dragon blinked its dark eyes, looking down, seeming to examine her. She reached slowly, unbuckling her weapons belt, and let it drop to the ground, followed by her dagger. Sheng Wo? she asked, looking up at the beast. It regarded her for a moment longer, then unfurled its bat-like wings, lifting off into the air. She stared upwards as it rose higher and higher, until she could no longer see its shimmering scales in the bright blue sky. "'Valentina, are you all right?' Alice asked, rushing to her side. "'Yes,' she said slowly, turning to look at Alice as the young woman took her hand. Alice was breathing unsteadily, her chest rising and falling rapidly. But as their hands met, she seemed to calm, her bright eyes staring into her own dark ones. Valentina leant forward slowly, her tongue automatically moistening her parched lips, her gaze never leaving Alice's. She paused for a moment, their noses inches apart, allowing Alice time to pull back if she wanted. Then she closed her eyes and the distance between them, finding Alice's responsive mouth. The moment stretched on, and she forgot about everything else, where they were, what they were meant to be doing. She pulled back reluctantly, smiling as she saw Alice's slightly shy smile. Do you think we better find that treasure then? Alice asked reluctantly. I would prefer it if you did not die. Yes, I agree, Valentina nodded.
She turned to look at the hill again, and saw at the peak where the dragon had been sleeping, something glinting. She went over to the rock and started to climb, using the vines to help pull herself up. On the plateau, she bent down and picked up first a smooth wooden bowl, already brimming with fruit, then a small glass vial filled with a gold-coloured liquid. Finally, she picked up a long red ribbon. As she did so, the ribbon moved, changing from a simple circle, curling over itself, forming a figure of eight. She frowned for a moment, then placed the ribbon back down on the rock, where it seemed to stick fast, despite the slight breeze. She looked around, back towards the beach beyond the trees, just visible as a bright splash of gold. She thought there were figures running across it, back into the water. She hoped the ribbon had worked. Carefully she climbed back down, passing the other two objects to Alice before landing next to her. Alice put the bowl down, then pulled the stopper from the vial. A single gold drop seemed to cling to the stopper, suspended in mid-air. "'Are you ready?' Alice asked, her eyes meeting Valentina's. "'Yes.' She stepped forward and tilted her head, so Alice could hold the stopper above her open mouth. The gold drop fell. It tasted cool and refreshing like spring water, layered with roses and wild grasses. Instantly, she began to feel better. The pain eased, then vanished from her arm. The fever cooled, and even the aches from her climb left her. That was amazing. Let us find the others and see if anyone else needs it. Alice nodded, and they began the descent. Young Bao greeted them as they neared the beach, a smile on his face. What happened? she asked him, as Alice left to tend to the wounded. Suddenly they all started shouting, he said. They seemed to think they were in the sea, even though they were still on land. It was quite amusing watching them. They moved as if they were swimming, then swam off to their boats. The ship has gone. So we are safe, she said, glancing back up towards where the ribbon rested, concealing the island from everyone. And this is our new home, Yang Bao agreed. So you will be needing this then, she said, pulling a ring from her skirts and inclining her head towards Delphine. Thank you, Valentina, he said with his familiar smile. What do we do now? Alice asked, coming back to join them. We decide where we want our home to be, Valentina said. She leant over and kissed Alice. But first we need to take offerings up to Sheng Wo. The three of them turned to look up at the hilltop and saw the dragon had returned. He was stone once more, resting protectively over the ribbon that would keep them safe in their new home. This story is available in Harvey Duckman Presents Pirates Special 2020, available online and featuring works of suspense and mystery in the genres of science fiction, fantasy, horror and steampunkery based, oddly enough, on pirates. Melissa also has stories in volumes 3 and 6 of previous Harvey Duckman Presents.
Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. So thank you so much to Melissa Widat Phillips for that story. Melissa has featured on many occasions in the past on Love the Words and East Leeds FM more generally. We hope to hear some more from her soon. Now, the final part of Jimi Andrex's COVID journal that he's been compiling over the last three or four months, his pandemical. So this is episode nine. Rounding off that sequence, thanks, Jimmy, for giving us these wonderful things. We're also going to hear a Wordy Birds at the end. Wordy Birds, we produced about 100 and 120 episodes of Wordy Birds during the first three or four months of the pandemic. And um, Jimmy features in this also, along with James Fernie, the poet. Love the words on East Leeds FM. Pandemical by Jimmy Andrex. Part 9. Are we there yet? When can we go on holiday? And when we say holiday, we mean abroad to the places we blame for everything in this land of grope and off colour stories about our own history. The only mystery now is how the Tories can keep a straight face. Are we there yet? Can we go to the pub? I'd like to talk to someone else apart from those I love or look after. Are we there yet? The tabloids just talk of holidays and why England players are wrong about race. They think it's all over, but infections are climbing. Some of the adverts have changed, but it's all about timing. The PM dithers like a shiting dog again. Are we there yet? Toddler journalists want to know when we can go back to a war over sausages or fish or a war on woke so Lawrence Fox can get his wish and be popular outside his own head. Are we there yet? They think it's all over, but is it really? Are we there yet? Booing our own players for taking the knee. Are we there yet? Where is this land of tabloid dreams draped in flags? Are we there yet? Big ones next to a picture of the Queen. Are we there yet? Where Lawrence Harvey sees off the Jerry's. Are we there yet? Where we can go to Spain again. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They think it's all over. And in a way, it always was. And its toes hurt from being too big for its boots And its feet were anchored like a dead tree's roots And its soles were covered in guilty scars And its boots were made for walking Though these days it went by car Till it piled on weight through lack of labour And its knees ached like a retired footballer Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside Trying to get away to the seaside And its belly was full of fattening treats 
and its dreams were influenced by late night cheese and its spine was a motorway started by slaves and its limbic system was sketched on the walls of caves and its neck was cricked from looking back and its memory was like my senile mother's well you'd have to laugh Fury in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Fury in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. seaside. And its heart was an object of bitter arguments. And its heart was located by inaccurate measurements. And its heart was broken by inevitable penalties. And its heart beat faster when looking out to sea. And its heart beat stronger when all people got the vote. And its heart was left in a seafront disco. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. And its fingers smelled of many pies. And its dying jokes were rescued by Markham and Wise. And its suit was tailored but didn't have niff. And its hair was like an old Ted's quiff. And its conscience was apt to nip out for a fag. As its hands rummaged in its pockets for a flag. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. And its eyes were bigger than its belly. And its teeth were chalk cliffs chattering into jelly. And its accent changed as the weather got more chilly. And its mouth spoke Norse translations of Stormzy. And its eyes looked outwards but pretended not to. Like a teenage lad on a fence at a girl's school. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Human in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. And its head was full of apples and glaciers. And its shoulders were pit props collapsed on miners. And its ears remade foreign sounds as its own. And its nose ran from autumn till early June. And its conscience opted for trial by jury. So it couldn't believe it wasn't the good guy. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Fuming in a queue, trying to get away to the seaside. Good morning and welcome to Wordy Birds. Wordy Birds is our regular spot for stories and poetry. Writers, poets, scribblers and wordy birds from all over Yorkshire and beyond give us what they've got. And the odd musician, yes, we do have one or two of those. 
So if you're a wordy bird and would like to send something in, we really would like to hear from you. Uh, we can broadcast it. In the meantime, first up today, we have Jimmy Andrax, who's going to be reading a story by Ian Macmillan. In the picture by Ian Macmillan. Last week, I was waiting at a bus stop for the Doncaster bus when a car screeched up and bounced to a halt. A couple on the front seat were arguing furiously and I tried to listen whilst pretending to study the vapour trails of aeroplanes coming down to or taking off from Leeds Bradford Airport. After quite a lot of shouting, the woman jumped from the car and slammed the door. For a time much less than a tenth of a second, she glanced at me, then ran off up the road. The man glanced at me for a time much less than a fifth of a second and then drove off down the road. And the point is that somehow, in some vague flickering image at the edge of their eyes, I figure in that couple's memory. Or memories, if that incident at the bus stop was the last straw and they split up before the parish shuttle had landed on runway three. Maybe, in years to come, they'll meet in a wine bar somewhere unlikely and they'll laugh and say, Remember that fat bloke in the red shirt who was at the bus stop when we had that daft row and we ran off and drove off? And there I'll be, the spectre at the feast, the unknown cousin at the wedding, the signature on the Christmas card that you just can't make out. It's a kind of immortality, really, this being at the edge of the picture. It means that you nag and nag at the corner of somebody's mind because they can only half remember you, and by being there you somehow bring the bigger memories into sharper focus. Where was it I saw the fat bloke? Tembe, looking longingly at a pork pie. That's right, Tembe. And that was a really nice holiday. But what if you could take it a tiny stage further and actually try and force yourself into people's memories by doing something silly? I could go to, say, Trafalgar Square, wearing a hat that lit up in neon lights with the word Madagascar on it. And loads of people would see me and laugh, and then a couple of months later, a couple on a first date would be nervously chatting, and one of them would say, I saw a really funny thing in Trafalgar Square this summer. I saw a bloke in a big hat with Madagascar on it. And the other one would say, Yes, you won't believe this, but I were there too. And I saw him, and didn't he look daft? And love begins to blossom, thanks to you and the daft hat. And the memory could cross generations. My dad tells a tale of a man from his own village in Scotland in the 30s who took a trip by train to Edinburgh and got off the train, looked round the station and then went back home. What's Edinburgh like, his mates asked him. It's full of steam and covered in glass, the man said. And my dad told it to me and now I'm telling it to you and there's that man in Waverley Station looking round at the ceiling and imprinted in all our memories like a watermark. I think it should be your resolution, your carpe diem, to try and graft yourself into the edge of at least one person's memory each day. Shout a silly word on the bus. Drop a tomato on the shoe shop floor. Hold up a photograph of a hen on a ferry. Play a trumpet in a museum. You'll become a kind of social glue. People will remember the day by you. You'll be a talisman, an emblem. Some couples have their song, but even more couples have their shared memory. Carry a balloon and a frog down the main street of any town and I guarantee that you'll never die. You'll live on like pre-decimal currency and a fork memory of a time when everyone smoked and wore a hat. What more could you ask? Thank you, Jimmy.
Our next contributor is a new one to Wordy Birds. Uh, it's James Fernie. James is a regular contributor to the Delhi and also presents a fantastic jazz programme every month called Hot Flavours. He writes a lot about his childhood in Glasgow. This one is called Cornerstones. Cornerstones by James Fernie. Street corners are where it all began. This is where we, as kids, hung out, where we congregated to while away the days, people watching. The system was already long in place and seemed like it always had been so tacit, implicit, with basic, unwritten laws, it was both clannish and territorial. Our designated corner was outside Buse Home Bakery and was populated by boys aged roughly 10 to 14. West of this was a corner for older, more streetwise lads aged 15 to 19 years who occupied the spot outside of the vividly hand-painted signage of the local cash and carry. This, on reflection, was... Brando Territory, Jimmy Dean Land. East of us was the woman's corner fronting Johnny's Fish and Chip Shop, a bustling throng in mornings, mid-afternoon and early evening, and exotically festooned with a rainbow of pennies and turbans amidst clouds of wafting woodbines. North, was the corner adjacent to the Sheeling Bar and unquestionably reserved for grown-up men, some hobbled by war wounds, sporting waistcoats and pocket watches and jaunty matching bonnets, their clipped conversation emphasised by the occasional waving of the day's sports pages or that week's edition of the war cry. Girls had no fixed corner but passed through them all at will, eyes down past the men, eyes up past the woman with some empathetic chatter thrown around. Giggles aplenty when passing either clutch of boys, more animated yet subtle, when dallying for a second to flirt with the boys on Brando territory. This is where we felt and absorbed the canny nuances of language. This is where we understood family connections and accepted the limits of free tongue bravado faced and why. This is where the clans connected. This is where we learned mutual respect. This was and is the procreation and reproduction of community and of its undying spirit. Thank you, James. James Fernie there. We'll be hearing much more from him in the next few days. Uh, Last of all, in this Wordy Birds first episode this morning, we're going to hear a piece by Terry Buchan. This is called The Imagined Life of an Imaginary Poet. I'd imagine. I'm working from home staying at home, 
working at staying indoors, staying two metres away from myself, far from the cat but close to the shelf with my parchment and quills in the drawers. It's real work, this staying, but also it's easy as long as you follow the rules and take the precautions laid out in Bob Dylan's directions for wise men and fools. So I'm staying alive. I'm staying at home, working online and through Zoom. Alive, but some distance from life as a poet when I sat on my own in a room. It's staying alive, this staying at home. It's good for your health and for others. So next time you're tempted to shop in the real world, remember, we're sisters and brothers. Except for those of us who are not siblings. And then, of course, we're lovers, partners, friends, acquaintances, colleagues, neighbours, enemies, adversaries, ex-friends, ex-acquaintances, ex-colleagues, and so on. I mean, let's not lose our heads over a simple global pandemic that might just change how we live our lives forever. So that's all for Wordy Birds for now. We'll be back further down in the programme. Listen in. Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM 103.4.